Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Joe Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. Today, we'll be talking about some frequently asked questions in the world of classical music and wine, and we'll throw out a couple terms as well and define them, some terms that you may not be familiar with in, in both of our worlds. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution for as little as $1 per month, or way more than that, on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scoresandpours. There, you'll also find a full playlist and a wine list. Emily Reese, how's it going? Hey, Jill Mott. Great. How are you? I'm... I'm doing really well today. I'm uh, really excited for this episode because it sometimes I think you and I both take a lot of time to prepare. Yeah. And this time we put together a list of terms slash concepts that we had questions for each other. And then also just I know when I'm recommending wines to guests, um, whether it be on the service floor, which hasn't been for months now because of COVID-19, mm-hmm. but um, uh, when I used to do that often and in the retail sector, there are terms that I use and sometimes I just use them like very freely. Yeah. And it's nice to, you know, just assuming that everybody understands what I'm saying and it's right. nice to sort of to break that down uh, for people. Sure. Yeah. No, I agree wholeheartedly. I think I take for granted a lot of terms I use as well. And there are even terms that I haven't used before uh, that I'm going to talk about today. One in particular, and it's just a fun one to know. So... But the other one is a pretty common word that we've we've tossed around from time to time. Is is the the prior one that you mentioned? Is that the hemiola? Hemiola. Yes. Hemiola. It sounds like hemiola. a condition or know, like a right? uh, organ of some sort, <laughs> or like a like the thing that dangles at the back of your throat or something. Or, yes. Yeah. Yes. I was thinking more of like a. It's like a part of my liver. Yeah, or like hemiola. a heart valve or something. Yeah. I need to have it yeah. <laughs> in order to process. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess not. I guess yeah. it's musical, and we'll learn about it. In yeah, the next it's musical and it's been around for centuries. Like okay, let's just tell me what it is. Oh, okay. So yeah, so hemiola <laughs> is basically when you think about three beats. One, two, three, one, two, three. Now in that same amount of time, that was six total, right? One, two, three, one, two, three. I just said six numbers, right? Yep. Now what if in that same amount of time, the same amount of time, I want to say four instead yeah. of six. So here's your six, right? One, one two, three, four, five, six. Okay. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Okay. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So one's so keeping four. it. One's keeping it. Keeping four. And then one's allowing six. In the same amount of time. Okay. Right? So if you think about walking next to someone, let's say you you have to get from point A to point B, you take four steps, the other person takes six steps in the same amount of time. Yeah. All right. So, and is hemiola then the way that it's broken up allowing for that? Is that sort of what, it's a concept? It's a concept of, yep, it's a concept of like taking time out of a triple feel and putting it into a duple feel or... The opposite. Or the opposite. Okay. So if we're in one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Interesting. Well, let's listen. I've never. three, four. So how, okay, what I don't understand is I get the concept. Yeah. How the hell does someone attach that? Because music is already written. The composer 
rights with intention, right, to have A, a certain time signature, but then B, emphasis on, you know, mm-hmm. the way the, the meter is set up, right? Yep. So how, I don't understand why this is even needed because it would, you know, if it's if just I, a yeah, it's just a musical choice, and when you hear it in music, you'll you'll realize that you hear it all the time. You hear it in pop music. You hear it everywhere all the time. Yeah, jazz, classical, Renaissance chant. So let's listen to yeah. an example, um, and maybe that'll uh, help iron out some of those questions because we're going to listen to uh, the string quartet by Maurice Ravel, which is delightful. And yeah. in his second movement, he does this right off the bat. There are some of the string players are playing in, you would hear three pulses to the beat. Some People are playing in unison. They're doing it in unison. It's not switching one right. to another. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Got you. Got yep. you. So I you're going to hear it over top of it. Okay. It's, got you. It doesn't always have to be that way, but uh, in this example, it is. So let's listen to it yes. and see what you think. Here is the second movement of the string quartet by Maurice Ravel. And I'll even throw in another fun term in just a minute. So it goes by pretty fast. Yeah, but right? okay. Let's listen to it again. So you hear bum 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 bum. Don't hear the don't listen oh, to those yet. Okay. Listen to the descending string line. So that bum 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 is going against the. Mm-hmm. Hemiola. Yeah. One really great example of this. I'm just not even going to I'm just going to play it cuz it <clears throat> But it's such a good example because the drummer in this band is playing that rhythm. And this is a tune that's in 6/8, I think. It's in some kind of um, complex meter like compound meter like that. Um, if you're talking about she okay, so she she did preface she's like oh my gosh we have to listen to something and i can't blah, blah, blah. and <laughs> yeah. it, she accidentally pushed the wrong button so i heard it before all of you heard it yeah and this guy's like the best flipping drummer in the world well, he's a great I mean, drummer i'm yeah. sorry maybe not in the world but like in he's my opinion drummer. for pop yeah. music for yeah. someone that's still living carter yeah, yeah. I, like i want to meet carter and yeah. just all i could do is like watch youtube videos of carter drumming so yeah yeah, so this is Satellite from the Dave Matthews Band, and this came out when I was a wee undergraduate in Boulder, Colorado in the late 90s, and I had a friend who could not understand the concept of hemiola. Well, actually, there were a lot of concepts she couldn't understand, <laughs> but this tune changed her life because she understood when she heard the pattern in the drums. So, yes, this is Satellite by the Dave Matthews Band on Scores and Course. hit the chorus there mm-hmm. uh, winter's cold whatever he sings I can't remember winter's cold spring races or whatever the fuck um, <laughs> he's like he. you can hear the drummer in the ride cymbal mm-hmm. so in his right hand ding 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 and in the left hand doom chuck doom chuck doom chuck 
doom chuck so it's this opposing i'm air where we both are <laughs> it's this opposing duple triple thing and every once in a while the drummer he'll lay out he'll, he'll leave out that snare hit and it makes you think that we're back in this triple feel again mm-hmm. so let's listen to that again real closely it's it's really cool one, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, or one, two, three, four. 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 So there you go. Yeah, hey, Nola. That's hilarious. I didn't think I was going to come over <laughs> to the know. booth today and record some scores and pours and listen to the Dave Matthews band. <laughs> From the late 90s, right? Reminds me of my ex-boyfriend in high school. <laughs> it's kind of great. Are there any other examples of this in classical music that you can think of? There's off the so top many. Of your I mean, we head? heard okay. some in Brahms' Fourth Symphony that we played a few weeks ago. I mean, it's littered everywhere. Beethoven was a huge fan of it. Uh, you know, pretty much... It's, of course, not a given every time, but often when there's a piece of music in a triple meter, three or six, you know, so a compound. Yeah. I don't want to get too confusing because we've talked about meter before and it can get confusing if you're you're not familiar with the difference between simple and compound meter. But basically, it's a prevalent tool. It's so prevalent. So can we listen to one more? Do you mind? Not at all. If we find one? Not at all. Uh, so our next example is from one of my one of my faves, one of my guys, Beethoven. Of course, he loved Timiola. Which is what is funny is when Emily and I we heard it, and then we confirmed that we heard it by looking at the sheet music. And you'd think that the ice cream man just drove by because we were like, <laughs> "Yes, oh my god, that's so good." <laughs> well, what's fun is that you can visually see how you know in sheet music. There are bars of music, right? And so there's all these little lines dividing all the notes up. Mm-hmm. And you can see in the sheet music of this example, you can see them switch from four to six to four in there. So it's kind of neat. Yes, we are dorks. Yeah. Or nerds so, or whatever you want to talk. So this you comes from <laughs> the first movement of Beethoven's sixth symphony, the pastoral symphony, which... I assure you we'll talk more about someday because it's so good. So let's just listen to this little section. This happens right away, fairly close to the beginning, and you'll hear the accompanying strings. So underneath the melody and in the melody itself, you'll hear... And then... Then the accompaniment goes from instead of so uh, triplet feel is what yep. we call one two three one two three triplet triplet one two one yeah one and two and triplet triplet one and two and that's a better way to think of it yeah so here we go Let's listen to this little section. Oh my gosh, you sing the triplets and I'll do the, uh, rewind it. Perfect. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> do, 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 
That sounds good. Yeah, when I said we're dorks, we are, guys, and proud of it. Yeah, so Hemiola, there you go. We spent way more time on that than I thought, but super fun. And the episode is done. Yeah. We're just going to talk about the Hemiola today. Yeah. Uh, no, no. actually, I wanted to talk about the difference between bottle shapes because you've come to me, I don't want to say countless times, <laughs> but you know, you've, you, one of your favorite bottles didn't fit on top of your, where you like to save some favorite bottles didn't yeah. fit. And I know that you've asked one other time, so I wanted to, to touch on that. Yeah. And specifically, I'll talk about the two most famous bottle shapes, the Burgundy and the Bordeaux. The Burgundy is the bottle that has the the lower, quote-unquote, shoulders, um, if okay. you will, and the Bordeaux has the higher shoulders. And so the Burgundy bottle, they think, was invented first in around the 19th century, and it was easier for glass blowers to create is what they think. Um, if we, if you ever go online and Google, it's really fun to actually see old bottle shapes and sizes, but they, some of them look like perfume bottles. Some of them look like huge onions. Um, <laughs> and they were obviously very cumbersome to ship and stack. Yeah. And they were also like thicker and they weren't, they were never uniform. And so the burgundy bottle was conceived because it was easy to make. It also stacked really nicely. Well, what happens? Burgundy, by the way, we're talking about far eastern central France. And then you've got the Bordeaux bottle. Why is there a Bordeaux bottle? Well, competition. The Bordelais <laughs> wanted to distinguish themselves from the Burgundians. Now we're talking about the almost the same latitude, but the opposite side. So western France. Okay. We're basically on the ocean. And uh, the Bordelais wanted to, because they they are competing for the longest time with Burgundy for, you know, whose wines age longer, whose wines are more expensive, whose wines are quote-unquote better, and the shoulders being higher, some people say, well, yes, competition, but it also helps when you're pouring your bottle of wine into a decanter to, you know, uh, omit some of the sediment and allow the wine to breathe a little bit before it goes into glasses. Some some sommeliers and, and aficionados that drink a lot of Bordeaux will say that the sediment gets caught in those shoulders, and that helps, you know, you have less sediment in the decanter. I've never found, that's really depends on the person, like how fast are you pouring, sure. how skilled are you at it, do you have your candle, do you have all your sommelier BS and mise en place and all that stuff. <laughs> I, I think it more, it had to do with the fact that, you know, it it's stacked nicely, yeah. but it distinguished... Bordeaux wines from yeah. Burgundy wines. And now you see the world over, Pinot Noir is normally bottled in a the same, you know, Pinot Noirs from Burgundy. Yeah. Any grower around the world that grows and makes Pinot Noir, they'll put it in a Burgundy bottle. Cabernet, which is known for, um, is very popular in the Bordeaux region and Merlot, usually those don't go into a Burgundy bottle. Those go into a Bordeaux bottle. Hmm. So take Napa Valley. Yeah. that has Cabernet, you see the Cabernet in a Bordeaux bottle, and you see the Chardonnay, which hails from Burgundy, you have the Chardonnay bottled in a Burgundy bottle. Okay, so, wow. Yeah. 
Interesting. Just minutia. Now, you said a word in there that I, I understand what decanting is. I know what that means, but I'm curious why you do it for some wines and not others. And also, kind of on that same token or that same train of thought, you said something about how you don't want the sediment in the, was it the Bordeaux? Yeah. I mean, there's sediment in all kinds of natty wine, and we don't give a shit if the sediment's in there or not. So is that a taste thing? Is that like some high class they don't want sediment in there? Um, it's That's a great question and a loaded question. And yes, you're right. And yeah, you just basically answered your okay. question. I mean, <laughs> it is kind of a, you know, the you used to decant wines to get it off the sediment, but also if you were going to open a wine that needed to breathe, like um, think of when you're wearing, you're trying to wear in a new pair of shoes yeah, and you might wear them around the house for a, a little bit here and there before you go out and take a run in them or if they're high heels or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so with Bordeaux, we'll just use as an example, m- most people think, oh, my Bordeaux needs to age 20 years. Well, so go and decant it and you're kind of because you're giving it so much air, you're pouring wine into a bigger vessel. Mm-hmm. It's aerating it faster, so it's kind of prematurely aging hmm. in that vessel. That said, I've done this multiple times with friends where we've taken a, a you know name a region that needs to age Nebbiolo as a grape from Piedmont, Cabernet from Bordeaux. We've decanted it, and we've only, we've only decanted half. So we're ha- we have one glass of decanted wine for 30 minutes and the other half that's been, you know, we'll pour that little bit in a glass and that's been in the bottle. Yeah. And inevitably, the one that is in decanted just tastes stretched out. Like huh. I never decant anything at home because every time I decant things, it just seems like, you know, I'm telling my little niece to put on high heels and act like a 21-year-old when she's, you know, 11. Yeah. Like just don't, don't. Just if you're yeah. gonna open it too soon, then that's your problem. Yeah. And if it has sediment, just pour lightly. I can see pouring it into a small a vessel to get it off the sediment. Mm-hmm. But to pour it into a big vessel to give it a lot of aeration can sometimes. Okay. So when you're decanting, if you're doing it according to tradition, you, that means you're taking it from one vessel and putting it in a bigger one. You, usually, okay. yes. Yeah, and usually. nowadays with natty wine, you're absolutely right. There's sediment all over the place in natty wine. A lot of people don't care. A lot of people can rinse their glass or they can just not drink the inch yeah. or they can slug the inch straight from the bottle. You know, mm-hmm. natty wine folk, we don't really care about that. Yeah. All right, cool. And then that just omits a whole lot of wares that we have to have around the house. Yeah, yeah. But Interesting. What's next? Should we drink something? Yeah, let's try this cider quick. So I toted with me today a couple really fun styles of drink that we don't have often on Scores and Pours. One is a producer we've never had on Scores and Pours, and if we have, well, then I'm just wrong. But um, (laughs) I had some rum last night. Um, I think I said that last episode too, but (laughs) anyway, um, summer of rum, people. One of my favorite producers of cider in the country, they're called Shaxbury. They're out of Vermont. Vergennes, Vermont, um, just a short drive from Burlington, about less than an hour's drive. And this is their cider called Deer Snacks. It's in a can, a 16-ounce Tallboy, which, I mean, come on, Shaxbury, come on, David and company. Uh, why isn't this in a 24-ounce Tallboy? Um, that's okay. David, I uh, he was sweet enough to allow me to come and help make cider and stage in their cellar, so that was my little shout-out to David. Hi, guys. Love you. Hope you're well. So Shaxbury, this is their um, Deer Snacks 3. 
every year they come out with a deer snacks. Okay. And it's they're using all Vermont, usually heirloom varietals for their deer snacks, native yeast fermentation, very low amounts of sulfur added. Sometimes it's forced carbonated. Sometimes it's naturally carbonated. It depends on the year. And then they always focus on a no concentrates at all. They always focus on a, an artist. So in this on this can, it is the artist's name is Maddie Day or Dai, pardon me, Maddie, D-A-I. And it's just a really cool like pink, pretty, yeah. violet, fuchsia, a mm-hmm. little bit of art. So we'll include a, a link to that, but Heck just yeah. scores and pours. Scores and pours. So apple-y. Mm-hmm. Oh, just crisp and cold. Mm-hmm. A little acid there in the end. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it reminds me the closest thing. It tastes nothing like this, right? Because it's so much more complex than this. But to me, if I'm going to relate it to an apple that a lot of you would have eaten, it's like a golden delicious. Mm-hmm. Like it's, yes, it has the acidity of like a green, you know, Granny Smith. Yeah. And it's got like the Braeburn, the red, the fullness of that. But it yeah. also has this kind of rich nose mm-hmm. um, of like a golden delicious. Yeah, I agree. Palette's bone dry. Yeah. This is, it says on the can, zero grams of sugar. So, I mean, we're not trying to yep. play with a off-dry style here. Yeah. They're just a really cool a cool outfit. And I brought it because it's something we don't drink a lot. And I, I was like, let's, let's drink some cider. Let's drink some cider. Just a little funny tidbit about the name. So David, I was uh, when I was working in their cellar, David was sweet enough to let me stay with him and his wife and their new little daughter. And... I was making coffee on a morning off and, you know, I'm kind of like in my, I'm in my PJs and I'm not, of course, I'm not caffeinated yet. And so I'm kind of just staring out the window, but I'm not really paying attention. I'm looking at the green mountains in the distance and all of a sudden I get this like tap on my shoulder and I was like, what? Oh my God. And it's David in his PJs with his little, you know, like bedhead. And he's like, look. And I'm like, I am. What am I looking at, David? I'm not caffeinated. And he goes... (laughs) There was a beautiful doe, oh, like nibbling on some apples. Yeah, and he goes, "It's not just kitschy; it's true." <laughs> Deer snacks. Deers Deer love apples, just like we love apples. <laughs> Heck yeah! Cheers, Cheers to Shaxbury. Cheers, Shaxbury. I adore you. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right, musically. Musically. Tell me about pizzicato because pizzicato is part of the, it's the one of the names of my favorite Japanese bands. So what made me think of it. So let's just do that. So pizzicato, that's the other term I was mentioned. remember when we listened to that Ravel and I was like, oh, I could throw another term in here too, pizzicato, because that's how the string players were playing. Pizzicato mm. just means they're not using their bows, they're plucking the strings with their fingers. So oh, that's called pizzicato. Pizzicato. All right, yeah. cool. Uh, usually just pits. So it's just pits, P-I-Z-Z. It'll say in the score, pits. Oh, really? So yeah. they know to do that? Mm-hmm. Can we can we listen to one? We well, yeah, let's just listen brrr. to the Ravel again. Yeah. yeah, okay. I mean, there's so many beautiful... There's a really... Let's try this Benjamin Britten one, yeah, actually. Let's yeah, let's do something let's different. Let's do something So here's an example from a British composer named Benjamin Britten. Who we haven't featured no. on Scores and Bores. You know, no, we haven't talked about Benjamin Britten, and we we really could. 20th century British composer, uh, wrote phenomenal operas, wrote great string music, wrote a super famous orchestral piece called Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, um, which is pretty great. 
Uh, and he also wrote this tiny little symphony when he was pretty young called Simple Symphony. It's his Opus 4. And the second movement is called Playful Pizzicato. So you'll hear the string players doing their pizza, pizza thing. Yes, all of them. Yeah. It gives such a light air to, you know, if these guys were all bowing it up, it would just be so, like, rich, I'd have to cut it with a knife, you yeah. know? Yes. Emily, what's with the, the chairs? Because I know when I played trumpet, there was a first, a second, a third chair, and so on. Mm-hmm. And the first chair is obviously, you know, the the kind of the, the best one in the section, right? The leader mm-hmm. of the section. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know where that concept came from? And does the second chair then always feel like the middle child or the neglected child yeah. or the one that's always trying to compete for mom and dad's attention or mom and mom or dad and dad yeah. or what, you know, what's you parents, know, parents, or does the second child always, you know, like vying for parents' attention? Or? Yeah. As far as second chair goes, I would imagine some people like that role. There's a lot of pressure on first chair. First chair is the soloist. First chair is who you tune to. First chair leads any kind of, if you have sectionals, meaning if instead of having the whole orchestra rehearse at once, the trumpets go off to their own room, the violas go off to their own room, the, you know, everybody, they split out into like instruments and have a sectional rehearsal, then first chair would traditionally run that rehearsal. So there's quite a bit more responsibility for the first chair person. When it comes to a concertmaster in an orchestra, the first chair violinist is the concertmaster. That person is responsible for figuring out bowings. So if you watch a professional orchestra play, you'll notice that all the string players in their given sections are bowing in the same direction at the same time. Well, that's not intuitive in some cases. Yeah. So first chair responsible for for working out things like that. Sometimes if a composer just doesn't talk about dynamics enough and they're not getting, uh, you know, information from the conductor, the first chair is responsible for disseminating information they, like do that. Do they usually then make more money? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, I would imagine you have more responsibility <laughs> yep. just like most posts. Yep. Yep. And okay. often, especially in a big symphony orchestra, those chairs are named after some kind of benefactor or something, you know, the Cecil B. DeMille first chair, whatever, you know, it'll be <laughs> <Come on. laughs> something like that. So Okay, well, this is perfect because that is another question I wanted to ask you. Why Bordeaux and Burgundy, I'm just going to use as, a, as examples because I've already talked about them, but also it is a great comparison to, you know, Natty Wine is kind of thought like wine for the people and kind of avant-garde, blah, blah, blah. What what's with and and Bordeaux and Burgundy are like hoity-toity, right? Mm-hmm. Or like they're expensive, or they're elite, or it, why is classical music thought to be elitist? Or I remember like my mom one time, or my dad. I think maybe it was my father. Was like, oh, I'm not smart enough to listen to that or something. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like that's yeah. like, like I'm no, my dad's obviously way smarter than I am. <laughs> like why? So I don't. Like, yeah. 
why do people have that impression of classical music? I, I don't I don't know because I, I could say a number of different things, but then I can always contradict it with another thing. So if I say, well, it's expensive, well, so is going to see Madonna in concert or whatever, you know, that mm-hmm. costs a fortune. Uh, I could say, well, because people don't know anything about it. Well, they don't know anything about jazz either, and they don't consider jazz hoity-toity. Yeah. They consider it maybe hipstery, but you don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, so it's a really interesting question. I think in large part, it's considered that mostly for that reason, though, because people don't know about it, and because when you go to an orchestra concert, you see everybody on stage in a tux and a black dress, and it makes it seem almost for some people, maybe unapproachable. And so is that is that something that, you know, through time, now I know that there are places that you can go, you know, to some of the best concert halls in the world and they have a slightly less formal dress code. For sure, casual stuff, y- yeah. Y- well, yeah, and I'm not saying like sandals and cutoffs, but like yeah. you can go and you could be in like a sundress and be fine, yeah. not a black dress, short, you know, whatever. Yeah. So what is with, was that through time, there, it was it was expensive to go, like, you know, 400 years ago, is it expensive to go to the opera or the symphony? And so it was it was unattainable for people of a lower class or caste to be able to afford to go. And yeah. so then that just sort of bleeds into now, where even though someone could afford to go to Madonna, they could also afford to go to the symphony. It's just not a popular form of music anymore like... Yeah. Lady Gaga or whomever. Yeah. I mean, certainly there was a time where it was not for, quote unquote, the commoner or mm-hmm. the bourgeois. It was for the elite and, you know, nobility. And those are the people who had the orchestras in the first place, you know. Yeah. But as we got into the Enlightenment and, you know, into the classical era, it became much more about the people. Uh, and then, of course, you got into there being dance orchestras with the Strausses. And, you know, with waltzes and, you know, it's then it's all for the people, you know. So it did evolve over time to be okay. for everyone. And I think just the fact that people don't learn about it and it is such a huge... It's an undertaking. It's huge. I mean, I think that when you approach, like, if you want to learn about a composer, it's like, where do you even start? Do you right. start at their first work? Do you start yeah. at, a, you know, and then... That's why I love this podcast so much. I think we're trying to make it easier for people to understand these yeah. bigger concepts. Mm-hmm. And I think wine is that same way. Books, podcasts, articles online that's like wine for dummies, wine made yeah. easy, wine for the people. And it's like that's just what music and wine and all you know should be, right? Oh, so yeah. Um I'm glad that I'm glad that we're doing this podcast. Yes. This cider tastes so good. It does. Cheers. Yes. All right. <laughs> I'm going to answer this next question that you asked me, and then we'll crack open a beer. That sounds amazing. You asked me, what was the hardest wine that I had to learn or the most difficult wine to learn? And the wines that I find are the hardest or were the hardest to get my head around are Italian white wines. And the reason why is we have, you know, hundreds of grape varietals, hundreds of white grapes in Italy. And so when you learn about a country and their wines, you learn about certain regions and grapes that are associated with that region, and that's exactly what you do in Italy. But in Italy, they all are very similar. And granted, once you get good at it, yeah. they aren't. Right. But like when you when you just start to try to navigate that world of mm-hmm. like two to three hundred different white grapes, yeah. 
you obviously aren't ever going to know them all. So you just start with the big ones, right? And I just have listed a few that I remember learning and having to learn for my exams and have been enamored with over the years. But so we start, let's start at the Cinque Terre, Liguria, which is the Italian Riviera. Okay. They have a native, couple native grapes. One is called Mataosu in Pigato. Tell me you're going to know the difference between those two and Pinot Grigio. And then throw in, we're going to just go a little bit north of Liguria to the Valle de Osta, one of the smallest regions in all of Italy, one of the most isolated, mountainous. They have a really, really rare steely, just bright and steely and weird and awesome. It's called Preblanc. Then let's go over to the eastern part of Italy, the Veneto. They have Glera, which is used to make Prosecco, but there's a lot of people that have still Glera. Anybody that knows any of these grapes, if you start to think of how similar they can be, mm. especially if they're not using native yeasts, oh, they could be yeah. using like, I'm going to make my Glera and I'm going to make it with Pinot Grigio yeast. You know, Then now it gets more like Pinot Grigio esters coming off of the ferment. Wow. So Pinot Grigio, obviously very popular up in that area of close to Venice. Let's go down to, we're crossing the country again, and now we're north of Tuscany. We're in Piemonte. In Piemonte, we've got Cortese, many other grapes, but Cortese is a big one in a region called Gavi. Tuscany, just where do we even start in Tuscany? There's like 900 clones of Trebbiano, and there's <laughs> Trebbiano all over flipping Italy, and it's like Trebbiano de this place, Trebbiano de that place, Trebbiano <laughs> de the other place. And are they even all Trebbiano? Kind of, but they also could be mutants of each other. They could be totally other grapes that someone was like, well, Trebbiano's popular, so I'm just going to call this Trebbiano from my village. Well, wow. not Trebbiano. Maybe it is. So yeah. there's like that whole thing. In the area between western and northeastern Italy, we've got a very popular region called Suave. Garganega is very popular in Suave. Down further south, we get to Orvieto. People come in and they'll ask for Orvieto before they'll even ask, the region of Orvieto, before they ask for, say, Grichetto or things like that. Like, <laughs> it's just incredible how many different grapes are just on the mainland. I'm not even going to go to Sicily, yeah. you know. Go down to the heel of the boot in Puglia or Apulia. And there we have a grape called Bombino Bianco, which you don't find a lot of those vinified on their own, but super fun, kind of juicy, a little bit more extract than a typical cheap and cheerful white wine of Italy. There's a really very popular grape in the east called Verdicchio um, in a region called Jesse. And that's awesome and kind of nutty. Greco is very popular down in the where we would consider the toe of Italy, south of Naples. And yeah, they're, they're just all so beautiful. But learning those, it was like every day I just signed up for defeat. Yeah. And then just slowly, <laughs> I don't want to say won the battle because now with natural wine, thankfully, it's writing all new rules, which yeah. is super fun. Yeah, Keeps it interesting. True. But that's true. Yeah. Do you want to go fetch? The cold beer. I do. Ms. Reese. I do. Dippa. This is a dippa. Dippa. And we're not talking about Bigger or Ursa Major yeah. or Minor. Here we're talking about a really cool brewery out of Ontario. 
it's a collaboration beer, but the, the main brewery is they're called Collective Arts. And I love this because for me, wine would mean nothing if it were just wine, right? I need the yeah. history. I need the art. I need the people. I need all the things, right? Yeah. Collective Arts, they are right in, kind of between, they're southwest of Toronto in Ontario. Okay. And they're literally like right between Huron, Erie, and Ontario. Mm. Right between a lot of, it's probably a really humid place. Yeah. I can't wait to go someday. But their mission is craft brewing and emerging artists and musicians and how can they support them. Neat. And on their website, what's awesome is they say, creativity fuels creativity and creativity yields delicious pints. <laughs> I'm like, yes, okay. So they teamed up with Aslan Brewing, which they're out of uh, Virginia. And the Aslan, they're a whole different beast because Aslan, like on their, their website's really hard to navigate. And it says one of the, they have a lot of frequently asked questions. And one of them is like, how long are the lines? And the answer is, we don't really know how to answer this question. <laughs> People wait for a long time to get into Aslan to enjoy wow. the beers. And obviously now with social distancing and whatever, it's probably a different situation and whatever. Yeah. But they came together and they chose this dude. His name is Eric Jones to do the art. And we'll have a link on the Scores and Pours page for you to see. But Eric Jones is a screen print artist and an illustrator. And he's inspired by music and puns, which I think is really fun that we're featuring this beer on the show. Yeah. He likes to hear lyrics or hear a piece or hear puns, and he likes to try to visualize that, and then he will use that vision to, like, create his art. So they're usually based on language, okay. lyrics, which Neat. is really cool. Yeah. And this is a double IPA. Dippa. Which, a dippa. Which, who needs a double IPA? I mean, I do once in a while. So, which means it's an IPA, but stronger. So, instead of being, you know, anywhere from 5% to 6%, usually double IPAs start at about 7.5 and go up from there. Okay. And this is spiked with a couple different hops, three different hops, actually. One is called Strata. One is called Comet. And one is called Zappa. Yes, named after Frank Zappa. Okay. Found a really weird hop that was found in New, Ze or, uh, New Mexico somewhere. Okay. So, here we go. Mm. Taste this guy. Look at that head Smells retention. Smells delicious. Cheers. To Frank Zappa, whatever. I guess, yeah. Smells great. It doesn't smell like overly, like it's going to be rambunctious in the hop department. It's not. It smells a little, little ranky-danky, but not, you know, sometimes hops can be really citrusy. Sometimes they can be really floral. Sometimes they can be really almost like marijuana-like, you know, cannabis. It's related to, to cannabis. It can also be kind of dank. And this, I think, kind of is like, Dank and floral at the same time. Yeah, this is very refreshing. It's very smooth. I love how smooth the, the bubbles are in this. It's just like, it's almost like English to me. The reason why this is smooth, 8% alcohol. Yeah. There's a lot of available sugars. Now, this isn't a sweet beer. No. But they had to have a certain amount of grains so that this could ferment and produce more alcohol. Okay. Available sugars, meaning. Yeah. And that, I think, helps balance out hops. Like, if you have a lot of uh, hoppy beer, yeah. sometimes a higher alcohol will make those hops kind of feel more incorporated. Interesting. So instead of like, oh, my God. And, and that also depends on, like, how long are you dry hopping your beer at the end of the process. So that also can definitely have something to do with how much bitterness is in your beer. Well, so can the first hop addition. But just to not yeah. be confusing, it, you can 
help balance that out by having a higher alcohol beer. Neat. Which is cool. This is called their number 13, which they decided for their number 13, lucky number 13, they were going to feature this really cool artist, uh, Eric Jones, and uh, play with some really fun hops. So Delicious. Here's to people that like to brew and love music and art. <laughs> Hang out with those guys. Right. And gals. Beautiful. Unfiltered. Yeah. I drank mine already. That's how good it is. Yeah, rum last night. Whoa. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Tell us about the coda. So a coda happens at the end of a piece of music. doesn't matter if it's a movement of a piece or whatever. It just happens at the end. And essentially what a composer does is to get to the end, they add some new material that you haven't heard before. So that's really all it takes to have a coda. A and really there's a symbol, right, for coda? It's a, it's a symbol that people, or does it say coda? Both? Not always. Okay. There's almost never... A, there is never a symbol for a coda. There's, okay. you might be thinking thinking of like DC Alcoda, like go back to the beginning and then when you see this symbol, go to the coda. That's a whole oh, thing. Yeah. 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 So, that's what I'm yeah. thinking. But you don't have to have that to have a coda. I was okay. kicked out of band. Yeah. I haven't looked at sheet music for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we can talk about that another time. Why the, just some of the um, notation things that um, are in music to teach music or to tell musicians how to play a piece. But uh, but some pieces just literally just have a coda, and uh, it, it's really easy to hear in something like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony because we're all familiar with how that goes, right? And then when you get to the coda, you hear stuff that you didn't hear in the whole rest of the other movement. So let's just listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. Just super easy. It's also another great way for me to make you listen to some Beethoven. <laughs> I love that. So here's just a little reminder of how Beethoven's Fifth Symphony starts. Coda in this first movement, it's about the last 90 seconds or so, depending on what recording you're listening to, of course. And immediately when the coda starts, there are new musical ideas that you haven't heard from Beethoven until now, and it's all just being build, uh, being used to build up to the end. still part of the coda. go that's a coda and you see you hear codas all over the place sometimes codas are super short sometimes they're really long cool well that's awesome i mean i 
I always love hearing that symphony, and now it's fun to know that there are codas all over the place in there. All over the place. To Scores and Pours. Scores and Pours. To Shaxbury and to Aslan and Collective Arts Brewing. Keep doing what you're doing, guys. Please. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We're on Instagram at scoresandpours. And when we figure out Reddit, you can check out updates there too. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc.